everyone. Welcome to episode 20. And we are welcoming back Jerry Jones and Steve Monahan. They come back to us from episode six, where we talked about disaster recovery. And also joining as co-host of Dan Ramirez here. And we are excited to chat about what's been going on in their world. So today I'd love to open up the episode. Let's start with introductions so we can refresh everybody's memories. And then we'll start learning about your new projects. Jerry, do you want to kick it off? Sure. I'm Jerry Jones with the Sacramento County Office of Education and Executive Director of Technology Services. Fantastic. Sure. I'm uh, Steve Monahan. I'm the Information Technology Director for Butte County Office of Education located in Northern California. And Dan, why don't we just level the playing field? Both of us will go as well. Tell us a little about you. <laughs> All right. I'm Dan Ramirez. I'm a Network Systems Engineer with Kern County Superintendent of Schools. And Jamie Lusider, Associate Soup of Tech Services at La Cunada Unified. Awesome. Okay. So normally on the show, we start off with an either or. So I'm sure our listeners are all excited to hear if it's peanut butter or jelly today. But I thought we'd do something different since you repeat guests. Can you tell us, and we'll each go, something that is a super boring fact about you? That's what I'd love to hear. I guess I'll start with that. I think it's just a tech in me. And maybe this falls under a lot of techs do the same thing. But actually, I like going to YouTube and watching like iFixit videos. Electronics yes. Fix is one of them. Like how do you fix whatever laptops, switches? I just find it fascinating. You know, I may never use it, but it's really cool. And some, like my wife, thinks it's extremely boring and nags on me about it. But hey, I love it, And but it's boring. That's so good. <laughs> so I had to really think about this one. It's easy when you are asked what what's something exciting or something you love doing, right? Boring, huh? that's a tough one. There's a lot of boring stuff that I do. But I've settled on a kind of a weird, boring quirk that I have. And that's that I love blue paper mate enjoy pens like love them that is my favorite oh. of all time so anytime i'm running low i go out and buy several boxes of them so i always have them on hand and uh yeah i've used them for years and years and so thought that's a pretty boring aspect of my personality <laughs> i love that something boring about myself i too also have a favorite pen that's a uniball 207 <laughs> <laughs> but that's not the most boring thing uh here lately i have been starting to get back into fishing and mm. i am not very good at it <laughs> i haven't caught a fish in like two years so i basically just go out wet some fishing line and then come back home all right i'm gonna go with something that just popped into my head i'm really into different types of lotions so i have like a face lotion or a hand lotion or like an arm lotion so my husband knows before he puts lotion on he has to ask me like which one <laughs> this one's for so i'm very particular about about good skincare products is there a certain like scent though you like like what's the best scent oh i have a really good one from sprouts that has coconut that's really nice and then another one that's like an aloe vera for summer so I have seasonal choices as well. Awesome. Well, this is super fun from fishing to YouTube videos to types of pens. I learned something new that was quite awesome. So thank you for sharing. All right. So moving into our opening question, we'd love to hear what you've been talking about and working on since we last chatted about disaster recovery. What projects have you been up to? So thanks, Jamie, for asking. And I'm glad that you had us back again for another Insight podcast so we can update everybody on what we've been doing. We've been pretty busy. And at the last site conference, we unveiled some new business continuity plan resources that we've created for all school districts and county offices in the state. And so we're going to be talking about that quite a bit during the podcast today. So I don't want to steal too much of our thunder, but Essentially, there's. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about what business continuity is, uh, why you would want to use the resources that we've created. So along with that is a business continuity plan template and a business impact analysis template as well. 
And then other things we've been working on are creating disaster recovery scenarios that you can work with your team on to conduct a mock disaster recovery and kind of go through a disaster as it unfolds to see how your team would react, what kinds of choices would you make based on the type of equipment you might have available or the types of resources you have available at your agency. So we think that that would be a really helpful tool for all of our listeners to use here in the the near future. Steve, anything else that I missed? I'm really just refining the information we have, the guidance document, which has been very helpful for the small school districts in particular that may not have the tech on site. When you're filling out like our checklist or any type of other templates, there might be acronyms they're not used to. And the guidance document is kind of a a hand-holding experience where they can understand what it is. So, and that was based, you know, the guidance document was originally based on the subcommittee work that Jerry and I have done, but also throughout the years, we've, you know, these site sessions that we've heard from the community, you know, regarding maybe we should add this or that. So it's it's just defining, evolving the documents we have, including the the guidance, guidance information. Steve, where can people find those guidance documents? So that would actually be bit.ly slash K12DRP. And, and that would bring you to a Google actual site. And on that site, you'll have a link for specific templates you're looking for. And that includes the DR and uh, business continuity information. And in addition to that, there's a link on it to how to get a hold of us if you have questions or feedback and some other great information. Yeah, I really love on that document that you're asking for, you know, feature requests or upgrades or feedback on you. So I think that just makes it so dynamic that anybody that's working through it that has ideas has a way to reach you. You probably know this, but it is part of homework in the CTOM course during the cybersecurity course that you have to work through the disaster recovery plan. So I think that's pretty awesome. Awesome. We're glad to hear it. And it's another great program that site offers as well. So I hope for those of you that haven't been through it yet, that you'll consider signing up to go through that program here in the near future. And especially women, this is my personal invitation to you. If you are a leader in IT or ed tech, please consider applying for the program. Reach out to me if you have any questions. It's it's well worth the experience. I've been thinking about cybersecurity and, you know, are there any trends that you're kind of seeing when we think about disaster recovery and, and business continuity? Anything that is kind of rising up to the surface that we should be paying attention to from your perspectives? I think it's been a trend for a while, and that's education has mm-hmm. been the heavily targeted by cyber criminals mm-hmm. for sure. X amount of years. And it continues to be that way because they, they, you know, cyber criminals know education doesn't have a lot of funding, or if they do have funding, they may not have the tech resources to implement it, small tech teams, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So we're continuing to be targeted. So kind of how the DR relates to that, DR planning is a big part of it, actually, because a lot of it includes backups. Like if a DR hits, say you have a major flood or fire and it burns your, your data center down, what do you do to recover it? Well, same situation in a, in a cyber attack. If you ransomware hits you and your data center goes down, how are you going to recover that data? In essence, you would you would follow most or, or part of the DR template that you've created to go in and establish your ELC, which is Emergency Operating Center, and, and spin up your offsite location or restore your, your offsite backup, et cetera. So the DR document as a whole and the guidance documents helps prepare you to get to that if need be. You can fall upon it and give you that reassurance like, okay, no matter what type of disaster hits, we're going to be fully ready or somewhat ready to recover those efforts and then hand it off to Jerry to add to that. Yeah, thanks, Steve. Yeah, this is a a common theme that keeps coming up in some of the meetings that we have with the other County Office of Education CTOs around the state. 
And that is that really ransomware and other serious cybersecurity incidents can easily create a disaster for you. And as Steve said, because education has so much data and so much information, we are easy targets for most cyber criminals. And they want to get as much of our data as they can and or encrypt as much as they can so that we have to pay a ransom. And quite a few agencies have had to pay ransoms throughout the state because they did not have adequate backups or even worse, that the the way um, things were designed, the attackers were able to get into their backend backups and wipe those out as well. And maybe even in some cases get into their DR site and wipe that out as well, just depending upon how things are configured. And that's where you getting back to securing your networks by using uh, multiple segments, by making sure you don't have the same domain accounts or admin administrative accounts on your different systems. They all need to be different. And that's the common, common theme is they usually are able to use a phishing attack to get account credentials for the admin account, and they use that to go get into everywhere that they can. So I think that educators or education technology departments have been getting better and better at securing our data. But I would say the trend I've been seeing is, again, not only having good backups on site, but also having backups to an offsite disaster recovery location. And not only that, having a third tertiary location for your backups as well in the cloud. Wasabi keeps coming up as a very inexpensive backup target. So we tend to do that for our own, own organization that we have three levels of backup and we recommend others do the same. There's also, I believe it's called uh, Azure Blob. And then I know there's Google Glacier, I think. Mm -hmm. I might be getting the term wrong on that, but there's multiple vendors that provide cheap backup storage where putting the data in is inexpensive, but pulling it out costs you quite a bit of money. And that's okay, because if you have to pull it out, that means you've lost everything else and it's worth paying whatever it is, because that's gonna be far cheaper than whatever ransom you might be held up for. So I would say that's that's what I would focus on is making sure that you've got three levels of backup and your third level is this cheap and expensive cloud option. Hey, Jerry, that's a good point. Cause when you say cheap and inexpensive, I'm thinking smaller school districts that may only have like, hey, two school sites or, you know, sub five. As a county officer, constantly helping these smaller districts that are maturing and, and you know, maybe have two or three IT staff and it's a lot of it's coaching and teaching them and give just giving advice on how they can better secure their network. And this is another thing, like disaster recovery. If you only have two school sites, babes, you know, you got to pair off some of that, maybe put a couple of disaster recovery servers over at that other second site, just something so you, you not all of your eggs are in one basket. Oh, thanks, Dan. That's a great point. And Again, that is the best place to, or the probably the best thing you can do in terms of start small. So if you've got another location, at least get another backup over there. So it's not at your same physical location. And there's a lot of county offices that provide DR hosting as well for districts now. So I would reach out to your local county office of education, find out if that's something that they offer. If not, they might know of another county office of education that does offer it that you could partner with. And because we have all these really fast internet connections through the K-12 HSN, we can leverage those those connections, which in reality don't cost us very much money if in, and might be even free in some cases to move our data back and forth. So we're not having to pay these really expensive costs to get data from point A to point B. So we should leverage that as much as we can and uh, work with each other and maybe even find like a, 
partner district that you could partner up with and they put their DR stuff at your location, you put yours in theirs. That's another thing that could work if the county office doesn't have those uh, resources available for you at this time. But I know speaking on behalf of, of many of the county officers of education, this is something that we are trying to ramp up and offer this kind of a service to our districts down the road as much as we can and have the ability to be in terms of how much staff we have and things like that. But we know it's a need throughout the state. And thank you for bringing up kind of the most obvious thing, which is, hey, use your own school sites if you can, but just make sure it's far enough away. So if you have a fire come through or some other kind of major uh, local disaster, it would not affect your other school location at the same time or get as far away as you can. Then look into getting even further by partnering with another agency later when you can. And just to add to that real quick, you can easily find out if your county office ed offers any type of peering service or, or co-locations. And that's actually on the, the bit.ly slash K-12 DRP website. It's item seven, disaster recovery peering and co-locations. You click on that, it's an actual Google sheet. What it is, it, it lists the services that your, your COEs will be offering. And it's growing. It's constantly growing. So it might be just backups. It could be co-location, some others. Oh, that's awesome. I know. I'm always wondering what is the kind of list of services that we have re- access to. So that's great. Thank you. Yeah. Your session at site boasted that we could create our business continuity plan in five easy steps. Can you walk us through that process? Sure, we would be happy to. So we presented the same information at the last site conference, and we probably are going to be presenting it here again at the next one if our session is approved. So we're hoping it is. So we first start off with the why, um, because a lot of people don't know what a business continuity plan is. And I think that's important before you get into the steps. And just a, a simple reason for having one is that it's now being required by most auditors and insurance companies. So it's something that if it's not required this year, most likely it's going to be required next year or the year after. So we need to be prepared for that. It's something we did not start seeing until really about a year ago. Like we've been required to do disaster recovery plan, but BCPs are kind of a new thing. So what is a BCP? Well, it's really a strategy to operate with minimal service disruption after a disaster or a serious incident. So it keeps your business operations running in the event of a serious disaster or issue using alternate tools or resources, and then often it's in another location. So it's also prevention and recovery systems that you sort of brainstorm out and put into place for potential threats like natural disasters or cyber attacks. But the most important thing is a BCP involves your entire organization. It is not just IT. And that's what makes it very different from a DR plan. And then Steve, do you want to mention anything else about business continuity plans in general? Yeah. I mean, kind of Jerry, just related to the same information. It's not necessarily when you look at a BCP, it's not necessarily like a tech department's designing it. It's just for technology recovery. A BCP essentially encompasses your whole organization, right? So when you're building one, it's key to get the buy-in from all departments, right? What's most important to them? So your financial department, for example, might say, well, it's our ERP system or some type of financial related system. That's important to us. Okay, cool. We'll work with you figure out, okay, how long do you ha- can this system be down before it impacts your organization? So you build those, that model, that information into a BCP. So when you present it to, say, your board or your leadership team, you have a good idea. Okay, here's here's what it is. And then if something falls short of how many, you know, it's going to take too many hours to recover this, that as an organization, you can decide how much funding, if any, you want to put towards that to build that back up where it's not like a weak point on your uh, BCP. So when I started this process a couple of years ago, just learning about this, I thought it was an all tech process. Like, oh, listen, one more plan we have to generate. And as I worked through some resources, 
kind of discovering what everybody values and what we restore in what order is what helped us. That was kind of the eye-opener for us is as the tech team, we have this lens and this is what we see as most important. But chatting with those other departments and learning what their level of important is, then it helped us kind of prioritize when we plan the scenario of restoring everything and what order do we do it? And that was really helpful. I didn't expect that when I worked through the plan. That's actually a really good point. One of the things that, you know, when we're creating a disaster recovery plan or template, we don't really think about some of these other departments, what's most important to them. But one thing that, for example, when we created the BCP or we're designing it was uh, check, check printer or check copiers, printers, whatever you want to call them. That's very important, right? Because individuals mm-hmm. need to get paid. And if your organization mm-hmm. cannot print checks, I mean, that's huge. But we don't necessarily put that into the, like a disaster recovery plan. But in a BCP, that's one of the key elements. Do you have in a BCP? Like, do you have a secondary check printer? Where do you evacuate your staff to? All this other information that you don't really think is relevant, as relevant on a DR plan. And thanks, Jamie, for mentioning that because... It is crucial that we involve really all of the other aspects of our organization where we're creating a business continuity plan because it helps inform the disaster recovery plan in terms of what should that respond to first, what order should things be brought up in, and without engaging the other departments, we really don't know that. It's kind of creating a vacuum based on our own lens of how we see things, and we can't forget that there's many other important departments that are involved, and they have, you know, and stakeholders, and they have their priorities of how things need to come up and and things like that. So other thing I I did want to mention is a, a business continuity plan and disaster recovery plan are really closely tied together. The difference is a business continuity plan really involves your entire organization, whereas a disaster recovery plan is primarily for IT. And the business continuity plan should inform the disaster recovery plan in terms of how, when we create it, it should be based on our business continuity plan needs and requirements. So it's a tough one, though, for us in in IT, because generally speaking, we we can control the, the DRP part. We can't control the business continuity plan part. And so we have to start somewhere. And I would say start creating a DRP now if you do not have one. So you at least have one in place. And then go back to cabinet and the superintendent and really the decision makers and explain why you need to have a business continuity plan and that you need their involvement and their engagement in the creation of that. And that you can be the person sort of driving the creation, but you cannot be the one that just creates it on your own. It must be with all of the decision makers, usually those that are in cabinet in terms of creating it and defining, again, what are the most important things for the organization and what resources will come to bear to restore different things. And here's a good example. So business continuity plan would come into play if we had a gas leak in my building and all of the employees needed to relocate to a different location, but all of my IT stuff in the data center is continuing to function just fine. Like there is nothing IT related about this at all, but the organization needs to decide ahead of time, hey, what other buildings or resources do we have that staff could evacuate to? How would we evacuate them? How long would it be for? Who's going to decide when they can come back? All of those things are really not an IT function. And yet there really doesn't seem to be other folks in our organizations that are driving the creation of a business continuity plan. So it kind of falls on our shoulders to at least get that going. And it could be you have a champion that takes that over in your organization and handles the creation and you're a part of it or you're the champion. But either way, sadly, it kind of does fall to us to get things moving at least because we need that for a disaster recovery plan. Or they'll come to us and ask us to create a BCP because, gee, it's required for cybersecurity insurance or regular insurance or an auditor requires it 
it. And then we're stuck with something that we don't have full control over, right? So um, again, I would say, and I, you know, I'm sidetracking here a little bit, but that we should focus on a DRP first, get our house in order, then create a BCP. If you could do it the other way, that's way better. But I've just found in a lot of larger organizations, it sometimes it can be tough to get the ball rolling. So at least if you get your, your own DRP done ahead of time, then, then you're ready in case a disaster hits between then and when you have a business continuity plan done. And then you can always come back and update your DRP. And you should based on what you decided as part of the business continuity plan. Steve, I don't know if you want to add anything and then we can get into the, the actual steps that we've outlined. I think that's about covers it right there as a, as a whole. Yeah, that's really good advice. I mean, I think that was one of the things we wanted to talk about was like, how do you get started? So we'll, we'll pause on that and kind of, I think that's a good first piece of advice and then we can hear more about your steps. Great, thank you. With that, we'll go ahead and jump into the steps. So first step is to form a collaborative planning team. And that's gonna be key members from your organization, as I had mentioned earlier, who often sit on your cabinet. It can't be just the IT department. Again, we are a stakeholder in this and we might even be the champion of it, but we cannot create a BCP by ourselves. So who often it would be part of this team? It would be your CBO or whoever's in charge of business services, your HR director, communications director, if you have one, facilities, administration. If you've got a department that handles risk assessment, they should be involved. Legal, if you have a legal department, should be involved. So really all of those pieces should be part of the, the business continuity plan process. And then you're going to want to also include the um, folks that are in charge of your programs that you're running at your districts or county office of education, because they're going to have a say in how important it is to uh, bring your student information system up when that needs to happen or teaching tools in the classroom that may or may not be related to IT. So it's just to sort of give you an idea of like there's a lot of folks that have to be at the table. And I would say probably the most important ones in terms of an organizational level would be business services, HR and facilities with communications attached as well in terms of helping you, like if there's an incident or helping the agency get the word out about what to do so that they're letting both the employees know as well as the general public. Anything else that, Steve, that I might have missed? No, I could jump to number two. So number two would be understanding the situation, right? That's where you would want to start your risk assessment. And then a risk assessment is like one of the first actual documents you start filling out before you actually go and fill out a template. So the risk assessment it's essentially, it's, it's a document that's created. So you can sit down with uh, one of the planning team members, and I almost look at it like an interview. You have X amount of criteria you need to gather for the risk assessment. You create that criteria, and then once you gain all the information from all key members, you take that and then import or therefore transpose it into the BCP to start working on that document. But Understanding the situation, right? You have your key players. Number two, understanding the situation and the risk assessment is a key piece in that. Thanks, Steve. And then as part of that, we also have what's called a business impact analysis for BIA. So it's kind of the second piece of what you need to do before you can start creating your business continuity plan. So that's going to correlate your mission critical IT functions to how people and processes will be impacted by a disruption when one occurs. As part of that, you're going to go in and prioritize as a team the impact or the criticality of each thing that could potentially happen to you and essentially make risk-based decisions in terms of like, okay, 
it's risky that this one thing might not come back online because we don't have enough resiliency, but we don't care so much about that. So that's okay. But these other things like printing checks or ensuring that our student information system is up and running as much as possible, we can't tolerate much of a loss of that. So we want the risk to be lower. So we're going to put more funds and resources towards building up resiliency for those particular things. And then the other aspect of that is kind of putting together some research information to create recovery strategies as well, not just for IT, but overall as an organization as well. How do you recover from a major impact that might not be IT related, such as having to relocate your staff for a little while and then bringing them back? So just some examples of how the risk assessment and your business impact analysis are pretty critical tools in helping you create your BCP. That's great. I would say like how I got started is we looked at a list of all of our virtual machines and started imagining like which ones are the nice to have, like which are like kind of the edge systems that, you know, HVAC is important, but that didn't rise to like level one in terms of what we needed to restore quickly. So that was how we kind of internalized it as on the IT side. And then we can give that example to the other departments that we visit. Okay, so think about all your critical systems. Which ones do you have to have back immediately? Which ones can be delayed by, you know, six, eight, 10 hours? And that helped us start to wrap our heads around it. That's great feedback, Jamie, and perfect way to do it, right? Because we need to, you need to figure out some way to, to prioritize, and that's as good as any. I really uh, appreciate you sharing that out. All right, so with that, we'll move on to step three, and that's creating a business continuity plan, policy, and statement. And that's, in short, determining your goals and objectives for the business continuity plan and in terms of overall, what are your organization's goals and objectives? So that goes back to ensuring that all of your decision makers are involved in how the BCP will work and what it's going to support. So you're going to have to include business continuity goals for each division and department if possible. And then you're going to have to determine the cost of downtime for each service. So that could be a monetary cost. It could be a uh, cost in terms of lack of trust and from your parents or other stakeholders if this particular thing stops working. And then you're going to also decide what's the maximum tolerable downtime that you can have. And it's going to be different for each agency. And for some county offices that run the business systems, their maximum tolerable downtime is probably going to be the amount of time I can go before paychecks have to be cut or um, checks to vendors or all of those kinds of things, right? So it's going to be different depending upon the service and the department. Some are going to be higher, some lower. And then what's your recovery time objective? So that's the RTO. So that's the maximum amount of time it takes to recover the service. So what is the maximum amount of time that you can tolerate? And then your recovery point objective or RPO is the maximum amount of data you can afford to lose. So it's might have to have things back up within a certain amount of time, but I can only lose 15 minutes of data or something like that as an example. So we, we actually have included uh, these terms and what they mean in the, the appendix, and it goes into more detail. I know we're kind of throwing some acronyms out at you and throwing them at you pretty fast, but the resources that we have have all of this information in more depth so that as you go through and start creating the business continuity plan, you can fully understand what these are. And there's graphs and explanations of RPO, RTO, and why they're important. Well, I thought it was interesting that you added uh, trust because that got me thinking that not only parents, but also other stakeholders in your community that utilize the services by schools. Man, that's really an eye-opener. That's a really cool point. Thanks, Dan. I appreciate that. And that is something that carries weight with your superintendent, with 
pretty much most, if not all of your cabinet members. So sometimes it feels like we're coming and just asking for money for the things that we know we need and they don't really fully understand why the tech department keeps asking for this. But if you can frame it in that, what happens if this service that you rely on is down for this amount of time, how much trust would you lose with our stakeholders, right? And that's something that would click and resonate with them, I feel. All right, Steve, do you wanna go cover step uh, Yeah, one? yeah, so step four, one of the things that I actually goes hand in hand with the disaster recovery plan is defining customers, departments, and vendors that would be impacted by a disruption. So typically in an organization, okay, we're trying to recover. We're only really thinking about our own staff, but a BCP, it does encompass, you know, your customers and everybody else. So vendors is a key part, right? Having those vendors documented and, and knowing who to go to in a time of need is very important. And, and I can t say for sure, I've been through it. Like having vendors on hand that you can call like if your stuff goes down they know what you already have they can send you what you need and you may have to set up logistics a little bit different than you normally would say if, if your office is flooded for example they can't send here but just having getting them ahead of time like the information they need to send you the proper equipment for recovery is important and then defining customers right for county offset your customers are essentially your your districts your charters and, and other educational institutions out there so getting a list of those, like in key times where you're impacted by a disaster, you may not know how to, who to call right away, but if you have it documented and you actually define who they are first, it'll it'll save, it'll open up that communication chain and also the recovery efforts from a BCP level and a DR level will, will certainly improve. Oh, that's awesome. You know, I have an emergency binder and I don't think I have vendors in it. I will fix that right as we're done recording. I have it documented, but it wasn't something I printed for my emergency planning. That's great. Thank you for that. Yeah, that information needs to be readily available to everybody too, right on your team, because you might not be there. And, you know, that number two on the list, who's the second person to call? Who's the third person to call? And how do they find those numbers? So it needs to be in a space where people can access and get to it. Yeah, Excellent. very true. A call tree is very important, I think, regardless of the nature of the disaster. And a call tree, especially to keep it up up to date. I mean, we know it's education. People move on. So we you know make it a habit of, of updating that and then placing it in like a system that you can get to. You know, if you keep it on, like, say, a Windows file server and you can't get to that Windows file server, I mean, you're back to square one. But if you can keep it in a location and, and others know of it, where they can easily get that that information, that contact information. Very helpful. Very helpful. Yeah, thanks, Steve. So after we've gone through, collected all of the information from the business impact analysis and the uh, risk assessment and gathered our team together. So we're going to go ahead and start creating our business continuity plan using the template. That's again at the bit.ly slash K12DRP, all lowercase. So you're going to go in and start identifying who's your incident response team members. And this may be the same folks as your disaster recovery plan, but probably or may not be, I should say. If you're in a small organization, there's probably a lot of overlap. If you're bigger, there's probably some differentiation between the two. And again, that should be decided upon um, by the folks that are involved in creating the BCP. So you're going to go in and gather kind of your high level business requirements, enter the detailed information about each of your systems, including dependencies, the department that's affected, the criticality of that system. And then you go through and assign priorities to each of your critical processes. So your top priority is, of course, the most critical processes to the organization. Your least priority has the least impact on the organization. So it should just simply kind of map out to what's the stuff I care least about to the most stuff I care about the most. 
And then there, there's a section in there where you can describe your organization networking requirements at a high level. So basically, how how is your network configured in terms of like internet connectivity and things like that as just sort of an extra thing that's part of it. And include like what details and interdependencies you might have. So if your network connection goes through another agency before you get to the internet, that should be included. And then finally, you're going to go through and define your customers, departments, and as Steve had mentioned, vendors that would be impacted by a disruption of service. So that could be vendors that you either work with or maybe vendors that kind of rely on you. So as a, a County House of Education, we have vendors that we pay, so we would have quite a few that are effective. We can't cut checks on behalf of our districts and ourselves. So again, you're, you're going to go through and complete as much of that as you can so that all of that is in one single document. And as you're doing it, it shouldn't just be us completing that. That is with our team and the team's making the decisions. And we might, again, help drive it or point out certain things to get the conversation going, but it should be actual decision makers making the decisions, not just us. We're just, we just have a seat at the table. I want to pause just quickly for the listeners. If you, when you, hopefully when you started this episode, you were excited about this topic, but if you're just at this point and you're like, wow, this is a lot of information. I just want you to know that if you open up the guide, the template, you're, they're talking you through how to write this plan. And so I'm following along on the side. And so it's actually really kind of fun to know that you're hearing live narration and to getting a coach right now of how to get this started. So if you haven't opened up the document and are following along, do that now as you're listening. If you're not driving, but if you're at your desk, this is a good way to have the narrative and the talk through. So thank you both so far. Okay. So we're Moving towards number five, anything else on four? I would just go out and say, like, for those of you on the podcast that are listening and have already developed a disaster recovery plan or some sort of that, Jerry and I, and with the help of the subcommittee, we tried to design the, the BCP and all those other templates, like, on the same modeling scale as the others. So if you're already familiar with one, more than likely you're going to be familiar with the BCP. Um, a little bit different language, but it you know, and then also kind of goes hand in hand. Like if you have the information in, in the DR template, a lot of it you could take from the DR and put it into the BCP to fill in the blanks. Yeah, thanks, Steve. And one thing I kind of failed to mention at the beginning of the podcast is that Steve and I are not business continuity plan experts by any means. And so uh, we need to give a shout out to the uh, Technology Services Committee from the California County Superintendents. It's made up of CTOs at the different county offices throughout the state that uh, we had a lot of input and help from the different CTOs, including other agencies that actually had a, a created their own working BCP, had provided those to us. We were able to take a lot of those pieces and create the template that we now have online. I will say we tried to create a scaled back version of some of those because some of those uh, PCPs can get up to 250 pages long. And we knew if we had something that detailed and that intricate, it probably is not going to get used. So we tried to boil it down to what's the most important things you need to have in a BCP and what would be uh, most likely the thing that we would all use versus we look at it and it's so complex, we think we'll do it later and then later never comes. So that was our goal is to, again, make it a lot like the disaster recovery plan, like Steve had mentioned. So it's very similar, not complicated, and it does walk you through the process as you're going through it. So thanks, Jamie, again, for pointing that out. So folks mm -hmm. aren't feeling like lost. We're throwing all this stuff at them. But in reality, it's not that hard. 
No, it's straightforward, but it's amazing to hear your thoughtfulness behind it and how it got put together. And I think it gives everybody kind of the bite-sized steps they need to get this started. It does feel daunting when you have to think about all the responsibilities that land in the IT team's lap now. And what I also like about the business continuity plan is, as you said, you know, maybe IT is the champion. We're the ones that get it started, but it is something that we can share. A lot of the systems we take on, we can't share, <laughs> or we find ways that we can't give it away as easily as we would like. Um, this is something that, again, becomes a department or district or a county office of ed project versus just living in IT. Good little side question. I don't know if this is the best place for it. Maybe we can move it if you want me to later on. How often is this revisited? Like, is this a document that you're referring back to every three months, six months, a year? What does that look like? So I know we have recommendations in there, Steve, and it's been a little bit since I last looked yeah. at it. I think we said at least a year for sure, if not six months in terms yeah, of- Yeah, minimum of years, what we recommend currently. But like I said earlier, if you know someone critical on your team moves on, say the superintendent for that matter, that should kind of trigger you to say, okay, I need to update it as soon as we get a new superintendent or new. That moving on, if you have the time, obviously that that's helpful, but a minimum of 12 months and that kind of the same guidelines of the DR just to go through and update the call tree. I mean, the most mm-hmm. important thing is to get the phone numbers, right? Even if it says superintendent, you have their phone number, at least you have their phone number, someone to call. It's better than nothing. So yeah, a minimum of 12 months. And you added the change log in there. So you'll know when things are updated. So that's really helpful on, I think, the third page. So Dan, it was a good timing of you. So that is in the step five, our last step. So we did include testing your BCP every 12 months at a minimum. So really, when you test it, that's also the time you go through and, and update it because you're going to find, uh-oh, like that, and that's why we do the testing. This thing's out of date or this thing's not accurate anymore. So, I mean, we really should try and update it as we make changes, but I know how things are. We're putting out fires on a regular basis. It's hard to remember. I got to go back and update the BCP and the DRP. Um, unless it's a massive change that we make, then it's kind of easier to remember. So as long as we have something scheduled, I would say every six months to go in and either review it and then every 12 months test it, that'll make sure that it's it's pretty up to date versus you, you create it one time, it gets printed out, put on a binder and nobody ever looks at it again, which is kind of what we found with previous business continuity plans that were provided to us from some other agencies. It was done like three years ago or four years ago with a consultant. It was 500 pages long and nobody looked at it since then, which is why we're trying to create kind of a living, breathing business continuity plan that actually has use. And you could go in and and look at it real quick and actually use it versus it sitting around and nobody wants to update it because it's too complicated. So with that, we'll go through kind of the rest of step five. So Mm -hmm. it just comes down to implementing and then maintaining the business continuity plan after it's been created. So part of that, again, is determining who's going to be responsible for activating it, determining how will a response to a disaster be determined, like who what indicators are going to have to be in place for uh, somebody to decide, yep, this is now a disaster. Let's go ahead and kick off the business continuity plan. Also, this was something that some of the, the folks that helped create it brought up, that sometimes it's faster to wait out a disruption of service rather than activating your disaster recovery plan. So if it's going to take you a good four hours to stand up your disaster recovery site and the incident that happened is going to be over in two hours, you're probably better off just waiting out the two hours than trying to roll over and then roll back. And all of that's involved in that because of the time and the complexity of rolling over and rolling back. So just something to keep in mind. And that, so we just talked about making sure BCP is updated yearly or any major system change that should trigger an update. And then, as Steve said, update the call tree anytime we have a staff change. That's really important. 
And then we need to do walkthroughs and simulations of using the BCP. And part of that is the call tree test. So either we can actively test it or do a mock test of it. And that'll trigger the, oh yeah, that's right. This person's not here anymore. Or I forgot they changed to this phone number. So that'll trigger that. In the walkthrough and simulations, I think you'll always find something that needs to be tweaked or more finely tuned when we do that. And then, and finally, if you don't have a, a standby facility, Try and implement one as best as you can, either within your own organization or partner with another one like we talked about earlier. And that needs to be tested as well. So it should be a, a kind of a test of your DR site. And then you're going to record all of your changes and updates in the BCP change log, um, as Jamie had mentioned earlier. So that's why it's in there. So you always know when's the last time that I updated this and what did I update? All right. So we ran through a 28-page document. And I mean, I think hopefully everybody's feeling confident about the process that this is doable after hearing your five steps. I think that's what I appreciate the most is thank you for not producing a 250 page plan. As you said, are out there. This is some, anybody who's done the DR plan will see this and go, Oh yeah, I got this. Let me get the team formed and we can put this together. Yeah, thanks, Jamie. You're welcome. That was yeah. our goal. <laughs> Excellent. Dan, any follow-up questions for them about the plan specifically? Anything you've thought of? What I thought was kind of interesting is uh, when you do get contact numbers, right? I just recently con updated one of our, some of our forms. And I noticed that there's kind of like a culture change when you start calling districts and say, hey, can I get the cell phone number for your, your superintendent and for your IT directors? And there's, I think because of cybersecurity, like the public itself is getting more conscious about that. Should we really give these this random person information over the phone? Because it's like social engineering and people kind of got a little idea that something possibly might be going on. So you may have to write a letter and say, hey, can you fill out this information and send it back to us? So that it might not be as freely to gather that information on their phone as it once was. People are a little more reserved about dealing, you know, pushing that information out. Yeah, that's a very good point. I think a lot of times these are pretty high level documents we're talking about. And I think the philosophy would be the best philosophy is to meet with those involved with it to get so and then by the time they walk away, they should have a good understanding of what it actually does, right? How important it is. So when you do request, hey, their cell number, they should have, you know, they should know why and be willing to give you that cell number or home phone or whatever, motor, you know, next help. Yeah. Blackberry. <laughs> yeah, yes. Blackberry. That's what I was trying to get at. Blackberry. Your secondary um, AOL email address. Yeah. And then, <laughs> yeah. Yes, exactly. Your AOL address. So the second part of that is once you get that information is where are you going to secure it? Are you make sure like if you do secure it in the cloud, it's it's only shared with XYZ individuals. Those that you know have that need access, don't give it, you know, everybody access to see that because eventually it will get leaked to the, you know, the rest of the internet. But being conscious of where you put it is very important too and accessible in a time of need. So say I just saw this document for the first time today. Where do I go about? What are my next steps? What am I doing? Who am I contacting? Can I reach out to somebody to guide or coach me through this? What would you guys suggest? Anytime that Jerry and I are approached or other members of the committee are approached, like where do we start? Our response is the checklist, right? The bit.ly slash K-12 DRP, you know, go there. And then we try to put it in order. Actually, if you were to go to the site, you'll have it in order of, of the what we think is the best way to go about it, right? So the disaster preparedness checklist is number one, 1A, and 1B being the new alternate version for the small school district. So it's more of a dubbed down version. If you were to look, you know, compare the checklist, original checklist to the small school districts one, 
you know, we may ask if you have a generator on a small school district one, it may say, do you have like a backup power unit? Like it, it, we really dub it down. So you don't have to be a tech to respond to that. So getting that. And then number two on the Bitly site is uh, the disaster recovery guide. Again, it kind of goes and answers those questions or, or it gives you guidance, of course, to fill out the checklist. And then once you have the checklist filled out, it'll actually give you the next steps of, of how to create a template or fill out the template. Jerry? Yeah, thanks, Steve. Another option too, and I agree, just going in order, like Steve said, one thing you could do as well is go into the business impact analysis and start with the risk assessment and the BIA and then develop your disaster recovery plan. But I would read through the guide first before doing any of that and do the business continuity plan last. Again, it, in reality, probably should come first, but I will be honest, that's going to be the most difficult thing you're going to have to do because of all of the politics, getting all of the stakeholders involved. So let's get our own house in order first and have a working DRP first, then work on that. So you mentioned earlier that this, the work you've created, there's a lot of collaboration that goes into this. Let's say somebody would want to contribute. Is there a pathway for them to help out with projects like this or contribute to the work that you guys have done? So, um, yeah, we've got, I think you mentioned a little bit earlier, Jamie, that there's a feedback form on the resources site. So mm -hmm. if you are interested in contributing, we'd love to hear from you. And you could just fill that out and provide us direct feedback on what kinds of things worked for you, which things that you feel we could do better. If there's other resources out there that we could add to it, we would love to hear about that as well. So that's kind of a quick, easy way to provide us feedback. And then another way is to also reach out to your local county office of education and provide feedback up through them. Uh, we're encouraging county houses to reach out to all of their school districts to make sure everybody hears about these resources and even comes out and does what they can to kind of walk you through implementing them if you don't really have experience creating a disaster recovery plan in the, uh, before. And then reach out to me and Steve. So our contact information, I don't know if it's specifically on the site. You could just email me, jjones at scoe.net. And then if you use that feedback form, we get emailed immediately as well. So that's a, another great way to do it. And then we are also meeting with different site regional groups, especially the ones kind of up in Northern California that are in our area. And we we're happy to come out and uh, provide kind of an overview and even do some uh, desktop scenarios in terms of like walking through a disaster of what you might do as part of that. And then we're using or we're getting feedback from the groups to come back and, and update our, our resources. And that's really the last uh, year that when we updated the resources for site before we kind of relaunched them was that kind of a process where we were getting feedback from the users of the uh, uh, disaster recovery plan and, and updating it that way. Steve, do you have any other thoughts on? I would just say those who are still interested or want to find out what's new is definitely attend the, the site sessions this year. You know, we've had a disaster recovery session for numerous years now. We, so Jerry and I, you know, we've done it so many times. We wanted to change it up. And that's where instead of just having a presentation, we kind of talk about what a disaster is and how to fill out a DR guide, flip it on, a, flip it around and have a tabletop scenario to get more engagement out of the audience. Because it seems like there are some members that continue to, to attend the training, which is great, but also having that tabletop experience because it'll be a first for a lot of them. And it's it's new for us as well. So we continue to get feedback from the audience members and others in the community as to how to evolve it. And then essentially what it comes down to is like the train to trainer model, right? We're going to train the COEs and which therefore they can train their staff and so on and so forth. I think it's That's really cool that you guys brought up the regional groups. I think that'd be a real big benefit to actually have, hey, this is the document. Let's let's work through it uh, 
really quickly as a generic school, right? Let's just prop one up. What would we do in these situations? It seems, seems like a very fun thing to do. I don't know. Maybe I'm a little nerdy, but yeah, <laughs> just no, I agree. Kind of cool. I, I think it is. And I think everybody enjoys going through it. It's really an eye opener because you have to put yourself in the shoes of somebody that's actually going through a real disaster. And you realize like, wow, I didn't think of this or gee, I need to plan for that. And as, as Steve mentioned, too, we would be totally open to having a Zoom with the leadership teams of the different regional groups and kind of do a training them on how they can provide a disaster recovery tabletop scenario within their own site regional group meetings. And so that way it's like there's only me and Steve and there's no way we could go around the whole state and do this mm-hmm. at all of the regional groups. But it's not hard. It's just providing with the resources, kind of walking through how it would work. And then mm-hmm. each regional group team, uh, leadership team could come in and actually do it for their own regional group, which I think that way we're hitting the, the whole state. Everybody gets the experience of doing that. And as Steve said, we're also going to have one at the actual site well, if we're, our session's approved anyways, um, our goal is to have one at the upcoming site conference as well. Hey, you hear that, Tuna? We need this session at site. So when you listen to this episode, <laughs> make your magic happen. I love the regional group train the trainer model. I think that's fantastic. Let's make that happen. I will follow up with you on that and maybe reach out to Tuna and, and see what we can organize to get, get that idea going. That's great. Perfect. Thanks, Jamie. Okay. We've come to the end of an amazing episode. Thanks to our returning guests, Jerry and Steve, for joining us to share about the new plan that they've collaborated on and are launching with everyone. And we typically close with a really fun question. So I was going with the theme of kind of like the mundane versus the like gut wrenching, but I think you might still struggle with this one. So this is the, would you rather, would you rather only use a desktop computer for the rest of your life or have to use a flip phone for your cell phone and not the cool Google one, but an old school, non-smart alphanumeric typing for texting flip phone. Mm -hmm. So desktop or flip phone as your tool. Gosh, that's a hard one. That's easy for me. I I got an answer. Desktop, like, come on. Flip phone. Are we talking a laptop or does it have to be? Nope, you do not have a, no, no more laptop for you. You have to, you desktop only. Walking around with a monitor. Okay, (laughs) that's what I'm doing then. I mean, if you got a 50 foot ethernet cable, you could kind of go pop over to another office maybe, but. Yeah. Yeah. It's all in one desktop, you'll do that, I guess. Yeah. That's definitely me. The flip phone is not the way to go for me. I need to access information too quickly, too often. And I can't get my uh, access to my AI on my flip phone. (laughs) Jerry, I interrupted you. What were you going to say? Oh, that's okay. Sorry. I was going to say it kind of depends on, I think, what I'm in the mood for in terms of social media. So there's times I would probably switch that and be like, nah, I'd like to disconnect for a week or something like that. And I'll take the flip phone. That would actually be nice. But I... I don't know. I still do like a good desktop. Don't jinx it. It might come back. Everything comes back. Flip phones might be in next week. (laughs) Yeah. Well, thank you to my co-host, Dan, for joining today. Thanks to the media team of Charlie and Tuda at Site, and also the Site Leadership for supporting this podcast. It is an amazing gift to be able to create these and talk with experts in their field. So thanks everyone for listening and have an amazing rest of your day. Thanks, Jamie and Dan. Appreciate it. Thank you, everybody. This was awesome. Yes.